0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to this month's installment of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through two episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue subject matter. Today's episode is the second devoted to our September 2017 issue on Comparative Medicine. I am your host, Helen Balenson, a fourth-year student in the
1: Immunobiology Program. And I'm Megan Kelly, a second year in the Neuroscience Program. We are honor- honored to have joining us today Dr. Caroline Zeiss. She is a professor of Comparative Medicine and an associate professor of ophthalmology and visual science here at Yale. She is also a lab animal vet, the director of the Mouse Research Pathology Corps, and the unit chief of pathology. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today, Dr. Zeiss, to chat about the power that comparative medicine has in research.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we're so excited to talk about comparative medicine. So I guess to start off with, um, what is comparative medicine? How does it differ from basic biology research?
2: Um, so comparative medicine, really for for hundreds of years, people have been using animals as models of human disease. And I would say in the last few decades, it's become formalized in the field of comparative medicine. Um, And it encompasses typically veterinarians who really look at how animal physiology and disease compares to human disease so that we can find the overlap and find the most effective way to study animals so that we can really influence human disease in a positive way.
1: Do you have any anecdotes specifically demonstrating the power of comparative medicine uh, for both humans and and different animal species?
2: Yeah. So I think um, there's a great example that's just come out recently. Uh, Recently, the FDA approved um, a new form of gene therapy for retinal dystrophy in, in humans. And the effective therapy of this was actually shown in 2001 using a dog model and then some years later using a mouse model. And only then did it go into human clinical trials. And it now looks like it's on the brink of being approved. And if it is approved, it'd be the first gene therapy that is approved for a disease. Um, I think the interesting thing about it is it's a really good case study to see why things translate. Um, And if I have a minute or two, I can actually point out the features of why this translates. And then we can compare it to why things don't translate.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah, that sounds
2: wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the disease is called Leber's congenital amaurosis. Um, it's a single gene defect, and, and that's a key element. So the cause of the disease is really well understood. And in general, um, it's easier tra- to translate from animal models of single gene defects than more complex diseases. Um, the second thing is that it creates a biochemical defect, and that retards cell functions. So people are functionally blind. However, it doesn't really damage photoreceptor cells until some time has passed. So we essentially have an attacked retinal cell population that you just reinsert the gene um, and the cells function again. Um, We've also been fortunate that the spontaneous animal models, one of these is the dog, and the dog is a relatively large species. And one of the challenges of gene therapy is actually to get the gene to the site of activity, especially in CNS tissue. Um, And so by having the dog, we could actually study the pharmacokinetics of the gene therapy um, and look at both the safety and the effectiveness and the pharmacology all at the same time in one model. So having all of those things come together is actually quite rare.
0: That sounds like such an exciting Kind of avenue not just for human medicine but also for veterinary sciences because it's also i'm assuming it's beneficial for the dogs as well and it would you could use this a similar therapy in dogs
2: yes you you could absolutely um it would be expensive <laughs> you need to be a wealthy owner um, but many of these spontaneous dog models for human forms of blindness really replicate the human forms very well and the money that's gone into studying the dogs for the humans has actually been funneled back to identify the genes in dogs so that these can be bred out of those breeds.
1: Um, So then naturally there are a lot of similarities, I guess, between a dog's eye and visual system and then human's eye. Is that where that kind of spontaneous model comes from? The fact that there are already these similarities between the two species?
2: Um, It comes from that. So the size is similar and the structure is, is similar. Um, but the dogs, different breeds, have been inbred for generations, and that's really where we get these spontaneous mutations that segregate with different dog breeds. Okay, wow. So it's it's a function of dog breeders and inbreeding.
0: What are kind of the benefits more globally of studying diseases from in multiple models? Um, so looking at different eye disorders, not just in humans, or using basic science, but using multiple models.
2: Um, So multiple models really become more critical when you're looking at complex diseases. So a complex disease like Alzheimer's, we have three genes that we know are responsible for the inherited form, and those tend to cause early onset Alzheimer's. But most people get the spontaneous form, which is later onset, and those people have no identifiable mutations. So what the identity, what finding the individual mutations has helped us understand is the interaction of all of these cellular pathways that tend to drive disease in older cells or in specific cell types. So for a complex disease like Alzheimer's, it really is the interaction of all of these cellular pathways that drive the disease in older populations. The mouse models, for example, for Alzheimer's really mimic individual molecular pathways. So they're mutant for individual genes like APP. So in a sense, they really look at a very, very small slice of the disease. Um, And the consequence of that is because you're looking at a very reductionist system, so where variation has been reduced, when you try to extrapolate your findings to a more complex system, it all tends to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And that's what is known as the translational gap. So you can find treatments that work in mice and many, many publications about that, but when you try and transfer that to people, it falls apart. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So there really has been, um, I think, an evolving understanding that to try and understand how all of these mechanisms work together, we have to look at different
1: models and then synthesize that information before we go to clinical trials in people. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it kind of makes sense. I mean, basic science is a very simple uh, model and we need things that are complex because organisms are complex.
2: Yes, and the problem with studying complex things and complex organisms is that you can't establish cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So you have to combine reductionism with some way to get to complexity. And, and that's a big challenge.
0: So what is, I guess, what's the biggest challenge that uh, for translatability in terms of this reductionist to human medicine approach? Um, so the basic science, you're kind of really breaking down the system down to one cell. What's happening when you knock out that one gene in a group of the same cells? When, but then once you get to the mouse, it's it's more complex, the cell um, and this gene defect is within a, a tissue, which is within an organ, which is then within this complex communication system between everything in the body. Um, and I, I guess it's it's easier, simpler for me to conceptualize that translatability in a way from basic science to mice being a problem because you are complicating the system so much. But what are the biggest hurdles from mouse to man? that other models are able to fill in? Is it uh, more just genetic similarity and distance?
2: Uh, It's a million dollar question. Um, So I don't know that anyone really has an answer for that. I think the issue is that even with the mice, it's still incredibly reductionist. So you're looking at inbred strains and single molecular defects within inbred strains. Mm -hmm. So within mice, there has been approach to increase the genetic diversity of the background. So you have your gene of interest, for example, APP, and then you have the background. And if the background is inbred too, you have sort of reductionism upon reductionism. If you put that gene of interest onto a more diverse background, and then look at the variability of response across that, that's one way mm-hmm. to improve the generalization, gener, you know, how generalizable your results in mice will be. Going to larger models, so for example, with the, the first example I gave, there was a larger model. The issue is, the critical thing is that larger model still had a single gene defect. Mm -hmm. With Alzheimer's, we really don't have those single gene defects in dogs, for example. And we do have a canine model of Alzheimer's. It's called canine cognitive disorder. And they get lesions that are very similar and signs that are very similar. However, trying to establish cause and effect and also trying to recruit a suitable number of animals you start to confront the same problems that you do with people, Mm -hmm. which is that you can't easily establish cause and effect. And logistically, getting all of those animals together is quite hard and quite expensive. Mm -hmm. So I think we can't let go of reductionism. I I think that would be a mistake. But one approach would be to really have an additive or synergistic effect where you have multiple reductionist models and then you synthesize that data uh, in in silico and Mm -hmm. actually come up with a target that seems to be a valuable target across multiple models. So you can show it across worms, across mice, across zebrafish, and maybe across a larger species.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of the power of everything coming together, kind of the the simplicity of basic bio, the basic biological research that might not be able to answer these more complex questions and then combining the complexity of these larger organisms, even though you might not know every single detail, and just bringing it all together to fundamentally understand what's going on.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think if a mechanism is really translatable, it's going to hold true through different paradigms.
0: So you've touched on um, kind of understanding a lot of these canine diseases. um, And so kind of stepping back and thinking about veterinary medicine and human medicine kind of on a a larger scale. Um, Do physicians and veterinarians consult each other a lot? Kind of because we are animals, we are in the animal kingdom. Is there a lot of communication or has it very separate?
2: Well, I can't speak for physicians, but from the veterinary point of view, um, I would say that the bulk of knowledge that we have about companion animals, it's very integrated with what we know about similar human diseases. Um, You know, very common companion animal diseases, we pretty much have standard ways we treat those. And we tend not to consult um, human clinicians very much about those. But then frequently you'll come across a condition that is less than common or more unusual. And then very often we will go and speak to MDs. We will look at the human literature. also, many of the drugs that animals use, or, th- or that humans use, rather, have been tested in animals, and usually the dogs. So we know that usually they're safe in the dog, and that we can use them in the dog, and so those can be used off-label. Um, the only caveat to that is that one has to be aware of species differences. So, for example, cats are very intolerant of quite a few human medicines, and in food animals, um, we're concerned about drug residues. So mm-hmm. that would not be a good choice
1: to just go and dump a human drug into yeah. Uh, we actually mentioned on the first podcast that we recorded the uh, use of Lyme, the Lyme vaccine in dogs that was uh, initially developed for humans and has now has since uh, kind of transferred over, been transferred over to uh, benefit the dog species and all of our you know, canine friends. Um, uh, can you talk some more about uh, the difficulties found in treating animals that are uniquely uh, unique to treating animals and not really found uh, when it comes to treating humans?
2: Well, I think we have a hard time sometimes convincing them that we're trying to help them. (laughs) (laughs) I can Um,
0: barely convince my cats to, like, jump and sit on the couch next to me, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: So, you know, you have to find all kinds of creative ways to basically be Mm non-threatening, to try and um, hide medications in foods, be very gentle in your handling, distract them while you examine them. Um, And then if you're doing something painful, you know, then you sort of head down this route of negative reinforcements. So Mm -hmm. you have to really be cognizant of um, how you do that or whether you really need to do an injection when you could give something orally. Also they can't tell you where it hurts but Mm -hmm. over time you really learn to understand their body language Mm -hmm. and you also really have to rely on the owner a great deal because the owner knows the animal the best.
0: I've noticed that with past cats that I've had too and with dogs that I've had, dogs are very vocal about when they're in pain and they'll complain a lot more. And I've had um, one of one cat that I had was very sick for a long time, but we didn't even realize it. And I only noticed it because because his behavior slightly changed, like he was starting to do some abnormal things. So is that very common? So relying on behavioral changes and these kind of are these differences actually real? Or have I just had weird pets? No, like no. complaining dogs <laughs> and not <laughs> complaining
2: cats. No, you hit the nail on the head. You know, so really how each species manifests pain is really distinct to that species. Mm-hmm. You know, even in mice, you can tell by their facial expression that they're in pain. Um, cats tend to hide things. Mm-hmm. Prey species tend to hide things mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And dogs, because they're just so intimately associated emotionally with people, often are a lot more open, but then you get stoic dogs and less stoic dogs. So within a species, there's a lot of individuality as well. Mm -hmm.
1: So with humans, nonverbal communication is a huge aspect of the way we interact. Do you see a lot of similarities then uh, in the nonverbal communications with our pets and with the dogs that you deal with um, in terms of like communicating pain, not necessarily with like wincing, but potentially with facial expressions or uh, other aspects like that?
2: Yeah, it's pretty much all you have, mm-hmm. you know, unless the dog understands you, uh, you know, th- and they do, they do understand a lot of the commands that we give them. Um, but it's it's very subtle. Often it's the omission of something, not moving around as much. Okay. Um, rather than an active show of pain. That's a very common way that animals manifest pain or not eating. Um, you know, with humans, you, you can speak to them, but even when you speak to humans, sometimes what they're not telling you is more important than what they're telling you. <laughs> I think a lot of veterinarians, uh, somebody told me that on the Briggs-Meyer, about 70% of veterinarians fall in the INTJ, mm-hmm. which I'm surprised. It's it's a relatively rare phenotype in the general population.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but then when I think about it, you know, it, it, it doesn't really surprise me. Veterinarians tend to be, I don't know, I'm generalizing, but a bit more on the introverted side of, of the scale. And I think very focused on nonverbal cues like body language. Okay.
0: Yeah, so I guess talking about all this body language and trying to understand kind of how an animal is feeling without being able to communicate kind of reminds me a lot of emotional disorders and trying to understand these kind of more difficult-to-explain disorders. Um, And they're often, at least for me, they've often been attributed to just being human diseases. They've just Mm -hmm. been this only humans have this because we're so emotionally developed like we have this horrible burden of um, this sort of disorders but um, i've just been reading in the news there's this kind of rise in prescriptions of anti-stress drugs there's puppy xanax um, emotional therapy for dogs and cats and other animals Um, how prevalent are these disorders is it a phase um or is it, I'm assuming it is a genuine, it is a genuine disorder in animals, um, and does it give us a bigger insight into the evolution of such diseases?
2: So behavioral um, problems in in companion animals are very common, Mm -hmm. and the first step in addressing them is really educating the owner about the animal's normal behavior and how it's normally going to react to a set of stimuli. Mm -hmm. So what is perceived as a behavior problem may in fact be a totally species appropriate behavior to a stimulus that that doesn't agree with the animal. Um, So that's the first thing to sort out. Um, Then you get more difficult intractable behaviors like forms of aggression, um, anxiety disorders, for example separation anxiety, destructive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then again, it's a process of of behavior modification which tends to be a long path that one has to go down but it's a process of educating the owner, identifying the stimuli that elicit the behavior and avoiding those. Um, and then going through basically positive reinforcement and very sort of consistent consistent responses to the animal's responses. Mm-hmm. Um, so animals respond best to a stimulus that they can clearly associate um, with an outcome. So something that has to occur within a short period of time. So then we could add drugs. So really, drugs would not be my first resort. But I, th- I think that in humans and in animals, th- there tends to be perhaps an overreliance on on trying to find a drug to solve the problem rather than a behavioral modification.
0: Yeah. So it seems so. In terms of kind of advice for pet owners, and um, it seems like what you're saying is that we have to really get to intimately know our the animals and their behaviors and trust ourselves, and not just say like, oh they're just having a bad day. So kind of really fundamentally understanding how they react to things, what happens if you, how they react to food being put in front of them or not being put in front of them and things like that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's that different from people. You, you may evoke negative reactions in people by giving them mixed signals that you're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for animals.
0: So maybe we should start having like next door to doggy training classes, like owner training classes and just like (laughs) flop, flip flop them sometimes. And that would be really, really beneficial.
2: Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize when you take your dog to a dog trainer, the dog
1: trainer is actually training you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so since we brought up kind of the idea of puppy xanax and, and that's a drug that is uh found a lot it, with humans uh do you know how similar the mechanisms of actions are of these two drugs uh and was there any transfer from kind of research with dogs to the use of xanax with humans
2: you know so the pathways the, so these are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and the pathways are very similar mm-hmm. they're very well conserved across mammalian species um if you think about the causes of depression in people, it's complex, <laughs> all right? We we have, we think about the future and we think about the past and then we become obsessive about the relationship of these two things and our place in them. I, I don't know that dogs do that as much. I don't know if they can st- extrapolate to the future and the value of their lives as much as we do. Mm-hmm. I think that drives a lot of how we think about ourselves and a lot of anxiety that we get ourselves into. So when it comes to that similarity, I, I really don't know how similar that is. Mm-hmm. People use antidepressants in dogs, and they mm-hmm. seem to help. It's a sort of let's try it and see how it helps. And there's certainly studies that are published that show that it helps in the behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, would it be my first go-to? You know, no, mm-hmm. definitely not. guess it kind of depends on how you define help in that situation. Right. If it's just m- making them, you know, mellowing them out that could be a help but it could also just be making them less like themselves yes. uh, in some sense and just making them less responsive in general exactly uh,
0: yeah i'm sure the animals also react to kind of quality time with their owners or other animals that they're familiar with so kind of human companions as opposed to like we're their companions as opposed to them being our companions so mm-hmm. it's kind of this mutual friendship and reliance yeah
2: yeah yep how rich is the environment? I think that's important for all of us. In captive animals, you have stereotypies that develop. So it'll be spinning around in circles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually very common, even in, in relatively lower mammals, lower animals. So it,
0: it's that's a pretty conserved mechanism. Um, so is that just stimulated out of boredom, essentially, and kind of not being outdoors where there's always something happening, but kind of being in a home where Hopefully, nothing too weird is going on, or unexpected is going on.
2: Yeah, boredom—you know, being extracted from a social environment. So the approach to that is typically environmental enrichment, Mm -hmm. and it it often helps. But once those behaviors get ingrained, they're really hard to get rid of.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because I know that octopuses also have this sort of thing. So if you take, um, so it's really difficult to breed octopuses in captivity, but so they're often captured and brought to aquariums or mm-hmm. zoos, and they get really bored and get really destructive. So they'll, um, there's actually people who design toys for octopuses, and they're incredibly strong creatures. So they have to design them with, like, steel, and they have to make them super, super tricky with, like, keys and different things. So, yeah, it's it's amazing how conserved boredom is and the need for yeah. kind of stimulus makes me feel better. <laughs> it's amazing how conserved
1: intelligence is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know examples of uh, other kind of unique uh, models that are used in comparative comparative medicine? Uh, and Creative uses of of species that you wouldn't normally expect uh, for humans to really learn a lot from?
2: Yeah, yeah, so the mouse is king, the rat Mm -hmm. follows. Um, But I've definitely seen a move more towards invertebrates Mm -hmm. and zebrafish, that's definitely an increasing model. And with really um, conserved mechanisms, you can study a lot of really basic science using those models Mm -hmm. and get a lot of information. I've also seen more of a move towards um, human stem cells and uh, pluripotent stem lines, especially from patients. So you can look at a lot of basic biology with those, and that's in the human system. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the use of organoids. I really see that Mm -hmm. as something of the future, where you look at multiple cell types interacting in vitro without having to use an animal and then of course people don't forget people you know with with new imaging technologies that are non-invasive we can really study neuroscience much more in people uh, much more than we used to be able to.
0: So I was wondering if you had um, any kind of advice for physicians from a veterinary point of view or kind of what you would want to learn from physicians to kind of increase the the size of the bridge that is between physicians and veterinarians? Because it seems like such a obvious relationship and kind of obvious um, working together environment because we are so similar to our animals. Um, Mm -hmm. Are there ways to increase the collaboration?
2: Well, I, I, I guess I can speak from experience with patient care, you know, so In veterinary medicine, you typically have one veterinarian who looks after all of the needs of your animal. And you establish a relationship with that vet through the life of the animal. So it's integrated care, really. Mm -hmm. Um, With increasing specialization in human medicine, I think some of that integration is lost. You know, so for example, I look at the example of my mother, who, she actually lives in South Africa, and the system there is, is a bit old fashioned in the sense that you still have one physician looking after an individual. And her care has been very integrated because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the elderly here, we tend to lose that integration, and the individual, the needs of the individual, which often may not be medical, mm-hmm. they may not need some advanced medical procedure or some kind of drug that you know is the seventh drug ac- upon their previous six. But really what they need is some integrated care that involves nursing care, um, social stimuli. And that may be best for the person's quality of life. Mm -hmm.
0: So that is really going back to kind of understanding the behavior of someone and kind of comparing their behavior and how they're feeling to some past time point instead of just seeing them right Mm -hmm. when they're sick. Mm -hmm. Right. So so exactly how you would treat animals or work with animals.
2: And as a human, you'll see a renal specialist, then you'll see a cardiovascular specialist, and, and you
1: wonder how much they're talking to each other. Sometimes. Yeah. and sometimes it feels like these just like very kind of uh, discrete chunks of information that never really integrate, even right. within yourself, right? Um, because you have these like very disparate interactions, uh, right. across these fields.
2: I mean, biology is incredibly integrated, but we 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 divide it up into different fields, and then we don't speak to each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess there there is this rise of kind of interdisciplinary research with like neuroinflammation. I know is really big uh, now, and kind of how the nervous system communicates with the gut and our digestive system and all these like crazy, but there's also this kind of rise in interdisciplinary studies within comparative medicine. So kind of really communicating the information from humans to animals. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, I don't understand why it was ever separated other than anthropocentrism, Mm -hmm. which,
2: Mm. yeah. yeah. Well, we're kind of narcissistic.
0: That's just the way it is. I I mean,
2: I agree. I think people have become more siloed. Part of it is just information explosion Mm -hmm. and specialization. So specialization is this wonderful thing where you can get really, really good at something and really understand the mechanisms and devise therapies that very specifically target a disease mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, But it comes at a cost, which is that you just can't encompass all of that information in your mind to cross all of those bridges. So I really sort of look forward to the future, I hope, where we have much more formal inter- interdisciplinary programs. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that'll be that'll be really interesting because for me, I've always, as, so as an immunologist, um, I've, I'm always thinking about kind of the immune system and like there are a lot, there's examples where um, immune, things that have been found about the immune system in mice don't translate. There's right. plenty of things that do translate. And so for me, it's always interesting like where evolutionarily where do these things come from and so it's it's fascinating to kind of watch the evolution of not just not not watch because I can't you can't really watch evolution but like read about the evolution Mm -hmm. of the immune system for me at least and then see how it has changed in all these um, different animals but also kind of understanding the complexity of it from a different organism so like if if mice weren't the king of um, animal models, what would we know about the immune system? Mm-hmm. Kind of what would the approaches be if it weren't mice, if it was some other, if all we had was zebrafish? So how much would we know? And it's, yeah, it's such a complex field and it's, I think it's hard to just like put everything together and synthesize it.
2: Yeah, and I think immunology is particularly complex because it's so dynamic.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah. So it's it always makes things really exciting. And I think translatability is always a really big kind of fight, not fight, but kind of argument throughout immunology, kind of, why are we studying this in mice? Like, why are we trying to cure all these immune diseases in mice? And it's like, well, we're trying to understand something and kind of build the global understanding to benefit kind of society as a whole.
1: I think in some mm-hmm. cases, it's hard for people to conceptualize uh, conceptualize where inspiration comes from in science, mm-hmm. um, and that it doesn't necessarily have to be a very obvious connection from one thing to another to still lead to some really important mm-hmm. breakthroughs and, and kind of explorations and new directions um, that really change
0: people's lives. So I know that we've been talking a lot about human medicine, again, anthropocentrism, <laughs> um, but are there, could you speak a little bit to the benefit of comparative medicine for animals and for veterinary sciences? And is it, is it just as beneficial um, for, let's say, treating dogs uh, to know the disease mechanisms of a lot of different model organisms uh, as it is with humans?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think everything we discover in people um, gets translated back to dogs because it becomes part of the literature about the mechanisms of a certain disease. Mm-hmm. So I think it flows back to the animals pretty quickly. Um, You know, in comparative medicine, we're interested in animal welfare. And so we really focus a lot on discomfort and pain and how to minimize that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that certainly also translates back. Mm -hmm. Um, Trying to assess, you know, what are circumstances that make an animal feel anxious? um, And what can we do to improve that? I think you know, there's always this this crosstalk between lab animal medicine, uh, zoo medicine, and then companion animal medicine that it it just automatically, I think they just feed each other,
0: yeah, it seems like that you mentioned zoo the zoo animals, and I'm sure that that's a very different kind of interaction from animal to veterinarian than a compa- with companion animals, because even if an animal is fearful when they go to the vet as a companion animal, they have had more human interactions, they like kind of um, understand at least a little bit what's going on, I'm assuming. Um, but with with zoo animals, it seems like a very different dynamic, especially if it's um, an animal that was recently in the wild.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some zoo animals get very habituated to people, mm-hmm. um, particularly some of the smaller primates. Um, animals born in captivity get very habituated, and so they're much easier to work with. But larger animals, a they're more dangerous and, mm-hmm. and and B they may not be as habituated um, really
1: require creative ways to interact with them. And there's also animals in like uh, like health, kind of facilities where wild animals that are being uh, resuscitated to be released mm-hmm. where you don't want them to habituate. Right. Um, and so you have to kind of deal with making sure that they don't become too reliant or comfortable around humans because you want to release them back. But yet you still have to take care of them.
0: It's so exciting. And I feel like it's not discussed enough how advanced veterinary science is and how much work is being put into it and how complex it is. I mean, you're not. that's multiple species right like you're you're not thinking about just one.
2: Yeah yeah and I mean I think there are some fields that that are definitely as advanced for example equine orthopedic surgery you're, you're dealing with a lot of difficult things because of the size mm-hmm. of the animal
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know how do you anesthetize them anesthesia in a horse is really hard you know it can it can have some pretty difficult things to deal with um, and the consequences to the animal can be quite significant. And then if you're doing orthopedic surgery on something that heavy, how do you support the animal until it heals?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, I feel like that brings up the whole kind of separate thing of like athletic animals and kind of I know athletes, human athletes get all sorts of crazy injuries that people who aren't intense athletes don't usually get um, or at least are not ever in the situations where they could get them and with horses I'm I'm sure especially like racehorses and um, they must get injuries that are very difficult to deal with and in that aspect as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. so there's actually a field of veterinary medicine called sports medicine. So it's oh, a specialty. You board it in it. Yeah. And there's increasing uh, rehabilitation. So rehabilitation has now become part of sports medicine. So physical therapy for animals.
0: Yeah, my, uh, when my cat was in the hospital, there was all these dogs that were coming in, and they would walk out soaking wet. And I was like, what why are they like what are they doing and they're going to uh, underwater rehab where mm-hmm. they were walking on treadmills underwater to kind of alleviate the pressure and I was like that's so brilliant because I guess brilliant. you can't and it goes back around to not being able to communicate with your patients like how do you incentivize your dog to walk on a treadmill underwater and I guess lots of ch- cheese and treats and treats <laughs> Food. Food's always
1: good. <laughs> always
0: Maybe food. that's something food physicians should incorporate. <laughs> that would be great if every time I went to the doctor I get sweets. It stops kind of after.
1: Isn't that the dentist tactic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thinking about some of the difficulties that you've already mentioned, uh, things like uh, difficulties in communication across species, uh is it fair to think about pediatricians as veterinarians with a, a specialty in one species since they're interacting with children who have a lot of the same difficulties of different animal species?
2: Um, I've always thought that they're similar.
1: <laughs> I don't know how they feel about that. <laughs>
2: but, you know, kids that are, that are pre-verbal, certainly they have some similarities to animals. It's difficult to explain to them that, that you're doing something kind of uncomfortable. Um, and how do you get around that without creating a lot of, a lot of anxiety?
1: Um, I think kids definitely have kind of a fear of doctors. Sometimes when they're when they're really little, you go true. in and you just get a bunch of shots, and there are a bunch of strangers around. And it's how do you explain to to a kid that you know this will be good for you? Don't worry. But you know that's all they know is that it hurts.
2: And I think on the flip side, if you have elderly people with dementia, you you have the same problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know yeah, how do you about that. minimize anxiety for them?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. And I I think those two populations, kids mm-hmm. and also the elderly dementia. I mean they they live in the present, I think, a lot more than mm-hmm. than the rest of us do. And so you can't really explain to them, well, you know, this is going to feel better in six weeks. It's going to feel better. But right mm-hmm. now, it really doesn't feel good. I'll make a mention of reproducibility and translatability. Yeah. So I think you've obviously heard of these sort of being in the fields that you are mm-hmm. at, at Yale. And um, there's been a great push to reproducibility. And, and I think that's a great thing, because mm-hmm. unless you can sort of rely on the methodology of an experiment, you can't really translate things from there. Um, But I have seen this sort of notion that, oh, we should sort out reproducibility before we sort out translatability. And I I think that if we wait to do that, it's going to be 30 years down the line Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before we sort out translatability. Um, So I really think we need to focus a bit more on how do we achieve translatability, how do we set up our experiments so that they actually measure outcomes that are significant to humans Mm -hmm. um, rather than outcomes that may be just significant to the model. Mm
0: -hmm. But what I feel like understanding the translatability would give us more insight into uh, the reproducibility and kind of the heterogeneity, heterogeneity of responses to drugs or whatever phenotype you're looking at. So through comparative medicine and through studying translatable science, you gain more and more basic understanding of what's happening. And I feel like through that you can understand more of why things aren't completely reproducible every single time to the same extent.
1: Yeah, I think yes. focusing entirely on reproducibility kind of ignores the randomness factor. When like when we're using model organisms, a lot of times they're very, very similar across individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just simply not true for, you know, species in the wild, for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I think making reproducibility within a species the end-all be-all is potentially a little flawed.
0: And that wraps up another episode of the YJBM podcast and our series on comparative medicine. Thank you once again, Dr. Zeiss, for joining us. Um, Keep an eye or I guess ear out for our (laughs) next series on our upcoming December focused topic of gene editing. We will be discussing both natural and experimental gene editing techniques. And we'll start with exciting gene editing history. For example, did you know that a now-common technique used in the lab, CRISPR-Cas9, is actually based on a DNA-mutating technique bacteria use to defend themselves against viral infections? All this and more is coming up.
1: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our co-editors-in-chief, Helen Balenson and Yasmin Zakanyaz, and the rest of the YJBM editorial board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit yjbm.yale.edu. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you would like to contact us, email email us at yjbm at yale.edu.